Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Are you beginning to feel the weight of the book of Hebrews? Is it bearing down upon you? (laughs) This is a heavy book. This is a book which is pastoral and it's fatherly. One of the central arcs of this chapter is that there are children, there are spiritual children, and these spiritual children are not uh, deficient in and of themselves. It's not wrong to be a child, a spiritual child. It's wrong to be a spiritual child after walking with Christ for a long period of time. You should come to maturity. That's the goal. And in fact, that's the goal that the Hebrew writer is presenting. He says, I would desire to explore the high priestly office of Christ and how it benefits you and how it shows the glory of Christ and also the virtue of the Father and how this is an office that's been given for you, but also for God himself to be vindicated in his justice, to, to, for the Father to demonstrate and honor the Son for his obedience and his faith-filled obedience. And yet, the Hebrew writer says, I can't go into these things because I'm afraid that you will misconstrue them because you don't have the foundation laid, which is repentance. uh, As we begin to get into chapter 6, it's repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washing, that is, baptisms, uh, things like this. He says those things being foundational are necessary in order to begin to build up on that foundation. You cannot build a building and then build the foundation under it 
At the very least, if you built a, a, bu a building, you would be building it on a temporary foundation, which then you could possibly transfer with great difficulty, with great expense, with a lot of people who understand architecture and engineering. You could potentially move a building from foundation to foundation, but there's a temporary foundation in the middle. And so what the Hebrew writer is trying to get to is not just a metaphor of maturity, but also a metaphor of meat versus milk. We have need to eat mil uh, meat. Milk provides nourishment, but if you, uh, any of you mothers will know, milk makes you fat, but meat makes you strong. And so the Hebrew writer is encouraging, he's admonishing, he's rebuking, but at the same time, uh, lovingly guiding these young Christians to maturity. Now this rebuke, although it comes at the end of this chapter, is really one of the uh, underlying themes throughout this book, isn't it, as we've seen. And so we're going to look at this chapter in four major aspects. First is we're going to do a very short review of what the entire book has been about so far. And then uh, from that, we're going to look at the difference between the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek. And this uh, priesthood, it's not an ironic priesthood. It's the Aaronic priesthood, just in case, you're, in case you're confused. The Aaronic priesthood, that is the priesthood of Aaron. We're going to look at what it entailed and, that, and how that shows the glory of Christ. The reason this is written at this time to the Hebrew Christians is many people in the Judaizing uh, attack against the church in the first few centuries were saying that Christ does not have a right to be a priest because he was not of the tribe of Levi. And, and here the Hebrew writer dismantles that argument saying that the tribe of Levi actually came through Abraham. And in the later chapters we'll see Abraham himself recognized the priesthood of Melchizedek, who I believe is Christophany. But whether you understand it to be a Christophany or not is really of no importance at the moment. We're going to look at Christ's perfection in his humility. That is, how was Christ demonstrated as righteously obedient to the Father? How did Christ give a right account or a right presentation to the people of his day by his faith-filled obedience? That is, Christ's mediatorial office was not simply done in the spiritual temple. It also was enacted at the beginning, really in his suffering, his scourging, and going to the cross. That was where he began to demonstrate his high priestly role, though he had that role throughout his ministry. And so, looking at these things, the Hebrew writer then issues a rebuke. And we're going to see that this rebuke, although it is offensive at first is the most important thing you could hear. In fact, it is the central point of the book of Hebrews. If you, if you gain knowledge of Christ, and yet you do not see the warnings to faith-filled obedience, if you don't see the admonitions to become mature, then you really have not captured the essence of what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is not just an interaction with the doctrines of Christology. That is, it's not just explaining who Christ is, it's doing so, it's explaining who Christ is in order to show you this is what you are called to become. You are called to enter into a priestly office, in a sense, lowercase p, priestly office, in that you begin to mediate the, the glory of God to the world around you. That you begin to walk in step with a, worthy, a walk that's worthy of the gospel. And so we've been seeing week by week that this Hebrew writer is not afraid of, uh, you know, 
letting the punches land. They have this phrase called pulling your punches. It means essentially to punch somebody, but you don't really put your weight behind it. You don't put momentum behind it. Everyone knows the difference, especially you, you young men. You know the difference between punching someone in the shoulder in a playful buddy manner and really punching someone. I'm very convinced that there are people in this church that if they punched me, I would be out in one hit. The Hebrew writer does that. He does not pull his punches. He lets them land, and he lets them land in a way that is righteous and good, a way that is necessary and a way that is beneficial to us. So in looking at the book of Hebrews, we've been exploring Christ and these warnings to stay faith-filled. And I just want to uh, state that if you have been hearing these messages and you hear you know, we must be all the more sure and we must put on zeal in, a, in accordance with our knowledge. If you hear these admonitions or these encouragements and your response is, I've got to try harder, then you are missing the point. You're missing the point entirely. So if you remember back to the first week, the Hebrew writer begins showing Christ as the final word. Remember Hebrews 1, that God long ago in times past in various ways, various manners, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. And his son being the final word or the final testimony or the final message to the people of God was a perfect representation of the Father, a perfect demonstration of the grace of God, going to the cross and showing the forgiveness which is possible for those who turn to him. And that word is final and totalizing. There is no other word coming from God. There is no modification from, uh, of the gospel in order to receive some sort of new revelation. We affirm against the Mormons. We affirm against the Jehovah's Witness. We affirm against the cults in that they say the church has erred. And she has gone away from the truth. No, the church has been preserved by God. And we do not need a new revelation. What we need is an interaction with the apostolic teaching on its merits and for us to submit to the word. And so we saw how Christ being the final word is also the close. It's the deciding factor. He himself is the sword which divides joint from marrow. It's, it's the word of God. He continued, the Hebrew writer continued to admonish us not to neglect salvation. He says, if we neglect salvation, right, then we are going to be exactly like the Israelites who fell in the wilderness. And we've seen how this actually is against our normal way of interacting with the Old Testament. We think, oh, this is the New Testament and the Old Testament was different. But here the Hebrew writer makes a comparison, not a contrast. He compares the situation, saying that we should not be like the Israelites who, through their unbelief, fell in the wilderness. For we too will fall if we do not remain faith-filled or believing. The Hebrew writer shows Christ in chapters 3 and 4 as the high priest in the midst of his brothers, showing that the church has been called to be the family of God. There's a little bit of an adoption language that shows up in those chapters. And then we hear in chapters 3 and 4 a threefold warning against hardening our hearts. Remember what we talked about last week. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the reason the warning's given is because you can hear God's voice. And through your own stubborn rejection of God's word, which is a message of grace, reconciliation, and forgiveness, and the necessity to repent and a warning of judgment, 
even though God's word applies to you and is given to you and is uttered to you, in hearing, you can harden your heart. And so the warning is given three times, three being a number of perfection or a number of the Trinity, for example, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three. Peter's denial of Christ is three. Christ's restoration of Peter is three. These, these times over and over again where the scripture speaks in repetition, it does so because it doesn't have highlight and bold and flashing text. It just has plain words on a, on a canvas. And so the, the writer uses this passage three times to make sure his audience understands. This is a very real warning. You need to pay attention. Do not simply think that because you've heard the word that you have responded in faith to the word. And then finally, last week, we saw that faith-filled obedience is the entering into of God's rest. That is to say, your striving, which you do in order to put on zeal on your relationship with God, on your walk with God, that is an entering into rest. Remember the terrible joke about the paradox? If you weren't here, you, you missed a good one. But ask someone else, you'll, you'll love it. The point being that this is, this is seemingly impossible to the natural mind. How do we strive in order to enter rest? I, I spent some time yesterday working on my yard and to get my yard cleaned up and mowed, I did not have to rest. I had to strive. And when the yard was done, then I could rest. The point being, doing the works of God is trusting in the one who he sent. And so entering into this mindset where you hear these warnings from the Hebrew writer to put on zeal, to, to not be hardened in heart, to not be deceived by simply hearing the word but not doing the word, those things, if you react to those warnings as, I've got to try harder, or I've got to focus more on my walk, then you're missing the entire point. The Hebrew writer is constantly pointing you to Christ's mediatorial office. Christ is the high priest. Christ has made atonement. Christ stands before the Father even now, making intercession for you. Over and over again, he's telling them to look outside themselves. And yet, the heart which is justifying itself, the heart which is condemned before God, seeks to repair internally instead of looking externally towards Christ. That's what it means to have a faith-filled response to the warnings of God. It's not to try harder. It's not to seek to repair or amend your spiritual disciplines, though that is a good thing. If you do that because you're seeking to justify yourself, then you are missing the whole point of the Christian faith which is you cannot come before God on your own standing. You have no authority to come into the spiritual temple. Only Christ, as the book of Hebrews is teaching us, only Christ can enter into the heavenly places and the holy of holies, which is before the throne of God. Only Christ is a right sacrifice. And so the warnings against apostasy are not warnings to simply amend our pattern or amend our behavior, but to truly repent at the core, to acknowledge our deep need, and to acknowledge God's great remedy. Deep need and great remedy go together. And so getting into this, we see these admonitions, rebukes, and exhortations, but we don't double down on your efforts. Those come after the fact. Those are a necessary consequence. Those are not the beginning step. The call is to remain faithful. And if you remember in chapter four, God is calling them to enter into his rest, not your rest. It's not something that you achieve, but rather something that he achieves. Responding to the gospel in faith is always, always 
a looking away from self and looking toward Christ. In my pastoral duties, I have never met someone who had a problem with assurance of faith that wasn't quickly and clearly identified as an inward turning instead of a focusing on Christ. The object of your assurance, the object of your faith, is not your performance, but rather Christ himself. Because he lives, there's this great hymn, because he lives, I can stand, or because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That is the assurance that you have. And if you are looking for assurance in anything other than the fact that Christ remains, and Christ still stands, and Christ will cause me to persevere, then you are on a terrible foundation. And again, I'm going to prove why rebuking that strongly is the most important thing that you could have happen. So the central theme of the book of Hebrews is the priesthood of Christ, and it's the doctrine by which we have surety of right standing. It is the doctrine that proves that we have right standing. It is not through my faith. I want to impress this upon you. I think this is the greatest error of the Protestant Reformation. It, is, it has now been perverted over the last two centuries to a turning inward of my faith. My justification before God is not on the basis of my faith, but it is on the basis of Christ's faith, which has been granted to me. My faith is not disconnected to the faith of Christ. What do I mean by the faith of Christ? I mean the faith of Christ which is taught here probably better than any other place in the New Testament that Christ was entrusting himself to God. It's not my faith that I have confidence before God, but Christ-filled, faith-filled obedience. It is Christ's faith-filled obedience which now, by the grace of God, we seek to enter into and to emulate. So we are going to turn here now to the Aaronic priesthood. And Aaron is, is given as an example of a priesthood uh, which is given to the people of God in order to teach them something about priests. Considering the priesthood of Christ, in order to show the excellence of Christ's priesthood, the Hebrew writer makes a contrast. Here we are now having a contrast. We saw a few weeks ago that Moses and Christ were compared and then Christ was shown as more glorious. Here, there is simply a comparison and then a contrast. That's always the pattern. There's a comparison between the covenants, but there's a contrast. Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on the behalf of men. Verse 2, he can deal with gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. This is what is, he's saying, look, notice, every priest... He's saying every priest is chosen and he can deal gently. This is why Christ had to take on flesh in order to become intimately acquainted with the weakness of bodily flesh. And lest this sound heretical, I want to impress upon you what this teaches is that the incarnation makes something possible for the Son of God, which was impossible before the incarnation. And that is not a limiting of the glory of God or the deity of God, but rather actually a greater expansion of our knowledge of who God is. God is not a God of abstract. God is a God of concrete. God is a God of reality. God is a God of truth. And this is how he shows us truth. In the incarnation, Christ takes on the limitations of bodily weakness. Christ probably pulled a muscle. He probably got a cold. And he defecated and urinated. Unless you think that that is crass ways of speaking, I would submit to you that you are operating in Gnosticism. Christ had a real body, and it was subject to real things. It was a real human experience. Christ was not a phantom floating around, skating through life. 
Christ stubbed his toe. Christ got splinters as a carpenter. Christ probably skinned his knee. He, he was subject to infirmity. That infirmity was not of character or of nature, but rather of his bodily existence as a human being. He has bodily weakness. He has a loss of energy. He becomes tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He needs sleep. He needs rest. He needs friendship. And in fact, this is really what Psalm uh, really 22, Psalm 45, they, they show us these examples of Christ in his spiritual state as a human being suffering on the cross, not merely by the basis of the fact that he was scourged and beaten and uh, pierced with nails. Uh, those are horrific things in and of themselves, but he does that in the context of losing his best friends for three and a half years. I want you to think about how real the sufferings of Christ. Christ received the full penalty of sin, alienation from God, alienation from his fellow man, and then finally to be expelled from the land of the living, only to be restored again by God's work. But he experiences a real true relationship with humanity. It's a real humanity. It's an engagement with, it's a connecting to humanity in a way that, we often dismiss, we often give no thought to. But the weakness that Aaron has is not the weakness that Christ has. And here, this is why the Hebrew writer says, you need your senses to be trained to distinguish good from evil by practice, because when he says, says these things, he's concerned that these Judaizers might pick up on a phrase and say, well, here, clearly Christ isn't the perfect high priest, because you just said that every high priest is beset with weakness. The Hebrew writer says that that is a perversion of the text. Verse 3, because of this, he, that is the priest, is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he offers one for the people. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Christ, though sinless, does not have the same weakness of Aaron, which is personal sin and guilt and condemnation before God. His priesthood is greater than Aaron's, not only because it's pure, but also because it is ceaseless. I want you to look clearly here at, at these passages. Verse 6, he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you remember back into the time of the Exodus, there was this moment where Aaron and Miriam conspire together against Moses, saying, has the Lord indeed only spoken to Moses? And they set themselves up as priests apart from being in submission to Moses. And by this, we understand Moses to be a type of Christ. No priest may stand except for in relation to the head of the church, who is Christ himself. And so Aaron and Miriam actually are judged by God in that moment of rebellion. You remember Miriam becomes leprous. The reason Aaron was not be, uh, changed to leprosy is because God would restore him to the priesthood and leprous were to be cut off from the presence of God. Nevertheless, what happens to Miriam is the same guilt of Aaron, and Aaron, unless he was chosen by God for a special task in the future, should have faced the exact same consequence. And so Moses is being opposed by Aaron and Miriam, and he is being opposed by the head of the priesthood that God was establishing. This priesthood of Levi, the tribe of Levi, which Aaron was the first of that tribe to hold, actually could have been removed from him. This is not a possibility for Christ, the Hebrew writer says. He says, you are a priest forever. What does this mean? It means 
A, he will not fall out of favor with the Father, nor will he do anything so as to remove himself from the priesthood. We see when Aaron, his sons, commit gross inequity before, before God, they're killed by the presence of God. Fire comes out and consumes them. And Aaron is warned very strictly, do not mourn for them because you have been consecrated as holy to the Lord. It was possible that Aaron could have been removed from his priesthood. But here we see the glory of Christ being demonstrated as greater than Aaron. Christ can no longer, Christ can never receive a demotion in his office of priesthood. That is another reason the Hebrew writer gives for your surety. Christ lives forever and he will reign as a king and a priest forever. Though Aaron was appointed priest in the time of Exodus, Christ is appointed as an eternal priest. Not only eternal future, but also eternity past. And here it meets time in the resurrection of Jesus. He is designated by the Father to minister to all of those who receive salvation. Every single person who receives salvation in the name of Christ has been ministered to by Christ. And these are the types of things which the Bible speaks of as precious and great promises. I think that's 1 Peter 2. The, the, I'm not very good with references. The point being that these are the things that you've been given. You have the opportunity to be ministered to by Christ. In one of the parables that Christ has concerning those who persist in faithfulness, that when, when God brings his kingdom, the Lord of the feast will come and minister to him personally. That's an, an amazing thing. And Christ himself actually does this in a parable, in an acted out prophetic act at the upper room where he comes one by one, even to Judas, and he washes. He washes their feet. He, he takes on the form of a servant, washes them, and then they can eat. And he enacts the parable of the Eucharist in that moment. Though Christ's ordination is eternal, his priesthood is revealed in time and space in his ministry through his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. And that priesthood which was given to Christ was God's plan for all time. And here the Hebrew writer says it comes about and is made manifest to us. Then the Hebrew writer goes on to examine how Christ is the only mediator between God and man, the only mediator between God and man. Some of us have begun to slip into this sort of strange idea that I need someone else in order to put me right before God apart from Christ. Now, some churches actually embrace this as a, as a right thing. I think that this is a heresy. And this is actually a perversion of the whole point of the New Testament. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, I want you to, to know that this is primarily speaking about the Garden of Gethsemane, but I'm fairly certain that Christ throughout his ministry routinely prayed in this manner. He suffered knowing that he was not being received. All the while, he was proving that they had already put condemnation on themselves, that they had already entered into the hardness of heart, which would finally be judged in the judgment coming of Titus uh, in, in the, uh, the Roman uh, sweeping away of, of, of what needed to be removed. And Christ himself, I think, knows what's happening as he's going around, saving some, pulling out of a, redemnant, a remnant where, where possible, but he knows all throughout his ministry that they are going to be judged, that they have 
separated themselves off from Yahweh. And I think that Christ, in being heard, is not, it does not mean that he was spared from death, as we know surely Christ did go to the cross. He said, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will. Christ, in his earthly ministry, does rightly submit his will to the Father. But in that submission, he's not granted uh, dismissal from the task. He receives the task, embraces the task, fulfills the task, and through his resurrection is vindicated and judged as righteous. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I want you to test yourself now. Do verse 8 and 9 make sense to you? Although he was a son, he learned obedience. And, And now immediately, those who are younger in the faith, they might begin to say to themselves, well, he's God. How can he learn something? And verse 9, how can he be made perfect? Does that mean Christ was imperfect? These are the sorts of things which the Hebrew writer is saying take wisdom and discernment, which comes about from a mind that's renewed according to the Holy Spirit. Far be it from us to ever presume to say that Christ was in a state of imperfection. He's, what he's doing is he's exploring the glory of God through the mystery of incarnation, and that mystery can only be engaged in by hearts that are truly submitted to God and being helped by the Holy Spirit, which is a means of sanctification. And that means of sanctification is given to you. In saying that Christ learned obedience, we are not saying, nor is the Hebrew writer intending, that Christ was at one point disobedient but rather that he was not proven in his obedience. Does that make sense to you? Let's use an analogy. You can be in the black financially. You can have money in the bank. You can have zero dollars. You will quickly be in debt. Or you can be in debt, right? There's three states. We oftentimes think of positive or negative. There's positive, negative, and zero. Zero is rightly understood to be neither negative nor positive. And so in saying that Christ learned obedience, we are not saying that prior to this, he was disobedient, but rather that he was not proven finally in his obedience. Here the Hebrew writer sees Christ finishing his task and being faithful to the end as one category of obedient. Should Christ not fulfill his task, he would have been deemed disobedient. It is not that he was disobedient and became obedient, but rather that his time to fulfill his obedience was not yet up. Same here with perfection. We are not stating that Christ was made perfect out of a state of imperfection, but rather that Christ was not in proven or demonstrable perfection, but rather it was untested and as of yet unfulfilled. Christ sufficiently finished the task and proved himself to be the righteous representative of the Father, succeeding in the wilderness where Israel had failed, succeeding in obedience where all the people of God, every king, prophet, priest, had failed. And so Christ is seen as not only the high priest, but also one who is obedient and perfect. And the Hebrew writer at this point begins to bring a rebuke. He says, I want to explore with you the mysteries of the glory of the excellency and supremacy of Christ. These things which are the chief pristine jewels of doctrine, which will be for you a source of unending joy, wisdom, encouragement, spiritual sustenance. But he says you cannot understand them. 
This is very similar to when Christ was with the disciples in the upper room. He says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's not saying that the conversation will go long, although it probably would. He's saying that they do not have the spiritual weight-carrying capacity to understand and to retain what he desires to give them. God desires to give you wisdom in the things of God, yet you have to build a foundation on them. You have to build a foundation upon which you can build. As, as uh, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 3, no one can build on any other foundation except that which was laid, that foundation being Christ himself. And so the Hebrew writer has a rebuke to bring. He says he feels the need to bring correction. And he would that at this point they would be ready to receive these things. Test yourselves in this. Are you one who... Uh, this rebuke applies to. Verse 11, about this, that, and this is a relative pronoun referring to the ministry of God and the fact that Christ was ordained as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that that ministry which was given to Christ would be for them. But at this point, he says, about this, we have much to say. That is, they will get to this, and we'll, we'll get to this in future weeks. But before this, he's saying, before you hear these things, I want you to understand where you are and to judge yourselves rightly in order that you would see your need. And this is where we get to this understanding of the fact that it is a grace of God to bring rebuke. Oftentimes we use the analogy of a building which is on fire and a person is sleeping in the house and you're a passerby where in a very similar scenario to the Good Samaritan, except for if, unless you intervene, the house would burn up and consume those who are in it. That is what it is like for someone to persist in their immaturity and sin and not have a godly rebuke, either through a pastor or a Christian friend, come to them and to wake them up out of their stupor. They will quickly, in the state of sleep, succumb to asphyxiation, a deprivation of oxygen, and they will die before they even burn up. This is exactly what takes place to those Christians who harden their hearts and close their ears to rebukes from godly wisdom. He says that we have much to explain to you, but it is hard to explain. The reason it's hard to explain is because the Hebrew writer feels that he must cover every possible base and every possible point of departure from the truth. These Hebrew Christians are liable to take that avenue or this side street. That's what he's saying. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. What is he saying? Remember the last two chapters. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then what does he say in chapter five? You have become dull of hearing. He says that the very warning he gave, they've already begun to slip into They've already begun to become like those who cannot hear. As a spiritual father, the Hebrew writer shows the heart of an apostle. And the heart of the apostle, or a heart of an apostle, there are true apostles today, the heart of an apostle, really the heart of any shepherd, is that he desires to bring maturity. He desires to bring maturity to those who should receive maturity. And here, all you young mothers and fathers, hopefully this illustration resonates with you quite clearly. He shows that they are like children when they should be teachers. It is a disaster if you are 25 years old 
and are engaged in things which are appropriate for someone who is 12 or 8, whether you be a male or female. These are disasters. These are catastrophes. Of cr- they're crisis of character. And the Hebrew writer says at this point, your spiritual maturity ought to be better. He's not writing this to babes in Christ. He's writing this to people who are still babes who should not be babes in Christ. He's writing this to people who have had adequate time and spiritual resources. And in fact, Jesus, in his warnings against the the cities of Israel who don't receive his ministry, he says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, for if these things which were done in you, these miracles which were performed in your cities, if they were performed in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. The things, the grace of God, the operations of his spirit, the the means of grace which are given to you, which you do not receive, should you persist in your rebellion, will rise up at the judgment and condemn you. I got a PDF collection. Someone sent me a book, a series of books wrapped in a zip file. They gave it to me over Dropbox. And he said lovingly, he said, if you do not take heed of these, these will rise up against you in the day of judgment. And I, I was like, bro, that's, <laughs> you don't understand. Like I'm a pastor, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. And, and then I sat there, I sat there and I was like, wow, he, he's totally right. If you do not avail yourself, that is to dispose yourself to being present to the means of God, the means of grace that God has given you, that he's preordained that you should receive, they will rise up as condemnation against you. This is a a very, very terrifying idea. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you have everything at your disposal, you should have become teachers. What does that mean? They've had interaction with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is a necessary requirement to become teachers. That's what Paul says to Timothy in his letters. He says, keep sound doctrine, for by watching your word, you'll preserve both you and your hearers. And by that word preserve, he means save. That is, the the spiritual salvation which comes to the people under Timothy's charge comes about through the ministry of the Spirit, And that ministry of the Spirit is attending to sound doctrine. Not getting off on side issues, but sound doctrine. That is, our need for reconciliation and the opportunity through Christ. And that sound doctrine should have, for these Hebrew Christians, should have made them mature and teachers. Test yourself in this. Do you think that you're on a mission to become a teacher? Do you see it as your five-year plan to be able to share the gospel with anyone who asks you? I dare say I could share the gospel with anyone who asks me, though in the moment I would have the fear of man. By the grace of God, if he should be willing, I would overcome the fear of man. But I feel confident at this point in my walk that I can provide a reasonable defense for the justification of Christianity to any worldview. And I do not say that because I am some smart guy. I say that because for the last five years, I've been interacting with, as a part of my life, in free time, with apologetics materials. Those apologetics materials are open and available to everyone. Everything is yours. The scriptures are yours. The things on YouTube, which are from good teachers, they're yours. Take hold of them. Eat them. They're meat. Nevertheless, even before we get to meet, we need to be sure that we have become those who are mature. If you are a babe, drink milk. If you are not a babe, begin to eat meat. 
He shows that they are, teacher, they are children, though they should be teachers. You should consider yourself on a mission to become one who can edify, bring encouragement, and bring gracious rebukes. Those things are, should become part of your wheelhouse. They should become part of your way that you think about other Christians. How can I serve this person? How can I love them? Are, is there something that they're blind to that I should lovingly, graciously, in moderation, speak to? And if, if they give me an audience, then can I help counsel them through that? That should be your goal. You should become one who can, is convinced, I have been given, as we said in the first part of our service today in the Sunday school hour, I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see yourself on mission? Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles. Look at this. He says, although you should be teachers, you have need of someone. And this is against the radicalized individualistic Christianity that we have today. You have need of someone to teach you. You cannot simply find your way to Christ. The Bible is not like, you know, they have those divining sticks where you're out in the wilderness and you're looking for water. Have you ever seen those? The little, you know, it looks like a Y and people operate in their paganism and they're trying. Christians, you do this with the word of God. You think that I, it's just me and Jesus. I never need to talk to a pastor. I never need to get godly counsel. If you treat the Bible as a spiritual divining stick and you're hoping to find the streams of life, you are being deceived. You have deep need for interaction with pastoral insight and Christian friendship. Those are the gifts of God to you, and they're given to you in order that you would become mature. You have need of someone to teach you. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained. I believe this is a chief operation of the Holy Spirit by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who trains you to use your discernment to understand good and evil. And so this is my illustration that the Hebrew writer, this is what I'm, I'm taking from what the Hebrew writer is saying. He calls them spiritual babies. He says that they're drinking milk. Who drinks milk? Moms, you know. Babies. And at some point, they start to eat something else. Now here is where the spiritual uh, absurdities come out to play. This is not an arrogant thing that the Hebrew writer is saying. This is not an arrogant thing, and though it is offensive, those who take offense at it have no right to be offended. This is the chief spiritual doctrine in the zeitgeist of 2016. I saw a tweet the other day, and it wasn't by Church Curmudgeon, although I've brought you many of his tweets uh, over the years. Church Curmudgeon, if you want a funny Twitter account, go follow him. He's hilarious. Um, he's basically a parody account of like this old deacon slash usher who really loves his coffee and doesn't like new worship music. It's great. It's a great, it's a great Twitter account. This did not come from, from church curmudgeon. It came from someone else, but it basically was this, you know, 800, I'm dying of the bubonic plague. 1200, I'm dying of some other plague. 1600, I'm working in a sweatshop. 1900, I'm dying of dysentery, but I'm still okay. 2016, I'm offended. That is what the tweet was trying to say. It's, it's trying to say that modern man has become so focused on justifying himself that he constantly has to accuse others of not standing right 
so that he might feel, well, there the problem's out there. I'm, I'm pure. If everyone else could just become like me, then everything would be okay. That is the zeitgeist. It is, I'm offended. You've offended me. You, you've hurt me. You've damaged me. You should be punished. I need a safe space. And that is absolutely immature. That is absolutely immature. Those who take offense at the rebuke that the Hebrew writer gives prove to themselves that they are spiritual children and they have need of maturity. He calls them to their face, babies. Some of you are babies in the faith. And I say that as one who wants to call you up to become daughters and sons. Daughters and sons who begin to operate in maturity. It is abusive for a parent to not give their child food. This is where I'm getting to in this illustration. I'm going to unpack it as a parable for you. It is abusive, fathers and mothers, if your child is hungry, to not give them food. Amen? That's abusive. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, giving them the candy bar. I'm talking about you do not withhold milk from a child. Maybe for timing, but, but very quickly after. It is abusive to withhold food from a child. It is abusive, therefore, for pastors who do not feed Christ's lambs. They are guilty of neglect. That is what Peter was told to do by, by God, by Christ himself after the resurrection. Remember in, in Peter's restoration, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. And Christ restores Peter to a ministry of feeding them in order that they would be well-fed. He doesn't say feed them in so that they would be malnourished. He says feed them so that they would be strong. Simultaneously, pastors who do not call out immaturity are guilty. Pastors who let you operate in a spirit of weakness and childish uh, ways of approaching God, those pastors are guilty of neglecting the care of your soul. Lawyers care for legal matters. Doctors care for the body. Christian pastors are supposed to care for your soul. They watch your soul and according to God will give account to him for your soul. And pastors who never bring words of rebuke, even though they seem hard to receive, those pastors are doing you a great disservice. This is why I'm very wary of online ministries which never bring anything other than encouraging words. If you never hear a rebuke out of a pastor, he's not a pastor. Likewise, it's not only abusive for a parent to withhold food from their children, it is absurd for a child to refuse to eat milk from his mother or her mother. That there is something wrong. Now, a doctor might get involved, you might need to figure out something, but the, the child cannot live. If the child persists in resisting the milk from his or her mother, that child will become malnourished and will waste away. There is something, there is an intervention that needs to happen if the child is not eating. And this is what is absurd, is it is those who are young and immature Christians, through, uh, though they're acquiring sound doctrine and knowledge, they throw off rebuke and correction. Though they entertain messages with their ears, they don't ever let those messages penetrate to their heart. They've become dull of hearing. They hear with their ears or they listen, but they don't receive. The illustration works both ways. If you need spiritual milk, you should receive it. The Hebrew writer is not judging young Christians for being young Christians. He's judging those who ought not to be. If you are a spiritual child or if you find yourself 
at this state, you say, I'm, I should be mature, but I am immature, then get mature. That's what it means to receive the rebuke rightly, is to acknowledge your immaturity. Simultaneously, if you are a one who should be you know, eating meat, if you are a, a Christian who understands the foundational doctrines, as we'll see in Hebrews 6 next week, if you understand the things of God, but now you're coasting, you think, I'm justified before God, I have no need to acquire knowledge, I have no need to learn his word and become trained to provide a defense for the faith, if that's you, you are one who needs to start learning how to hunt. And learning how to hunt is being trained by God and godly men in how to read his scripture, to become strong. Bill Johnson, uh, a wonderful pastor that I respect, although I don't, dis- uh, I don't agree with everything he says, I-, I like much of what he says, he says that babies receive milk for free, but if you want meat, you have to learn to hunt. And I think he's right. You have to begin to be trained by someone to hunt. The one who is studied in the principles of faith who does not add solid food is acting just as immaturely as the baby who does not want to eat. You, you never get let off. Like you're, you can't rest on your laurels in the faith. You can't say, I've attained a certain measure of maturity. I'll kind of coast from here on out. That is not what the Christian walk is about. Therefore, our end aim, our chief aim, ought to be to build upon the foundation of Christ. Using Paul's analogy from 1 Corinthians 3, you should be considering how you ought to build, and you should be considering the materials what, uh, with which you build. Those materials ought to be gold, silver, and precious stones. What do I mean by that? Those things ought to be the very oracles of God, which are more precious than gold and silver. Scripture interpreting scripture, your life ought to be built not on your own knowledge, but by continual interaction with, receiving of, and engagement with the wisdom of scripture. Every book, every chapter, in order that you might build to last. This is, I think, the greatest error of the church today, is we are, we are content with building programs, ministries, character, lives. We are content with building on cheap materials, But I think what God does in the earth, he does in order for it to remain. And I think we ought to build accordingly. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would grant us grace, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us confidence that Christ is for us, and that rather than leaving us as immature, he will call us up to maturity. We ask you that you would rise up in your church in this country, ministers like Paul who said that his chief end aim is to present every man mature. We pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would convince us of the necessity of becoming mature Christians who not only know things about what we consider often spiritual matters, but also that we would know things about life, that we would begin to capture a vision for your word, for for the oracles of God as providing input so that we might accurately reflect the kingship of Christ. We pray that you would restore us to the study of scripture, that you would forgive us of our deep emotional neglect of these things, that you would also strengthen us. Lord, I pray that if there are those who apply, uh, who this rebuke applies to, that you would encourage them, that you would, you would allow your spirit to operate in them in such a way as to, to spring up within them and to give them hope and confidence and a vision for the future, that they would see the great and high calling in Christ. In Jesus' mighty name.
Amen.